No, no, no. All right, just you got to hear me out on this, okay? Just you got to take the body of work. All right, we got school ties. <laughs> we got days that confused. Goodwill Hunting. I mean, these guys owe their career to uh, him. I, I agree. Okay? I don't know how many times I got to tell you I agree. I, I know. I just don't know if you really feel it as passionately as I do because I mean, <laughs> Too Fast, Too Furious, piece of shit movie. It's worth watching for him, just like the movie Paparazzi is. He made that movie watchable. Same can't be said for Tom Sizemore. Sold. I, he has the best line in the breakup. I just, I, I don't. I, You're just too excited. We're gonna have to. I'm very excited. We're just gonna have to continue this conversation <laughs> later. Uh, we got something yes. to do, right? Yes, oh, we yeah, have to right. do. I yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, listener out there, welcome to Cigarette Burns. This is our Spike Lee episode. Uh, Cole and I are just so fucking pumped for this episode because Spike has finally gotten his Oscar nomination. And Cole, I mean, on a scale of one to ten, how excited uh, are you? Do the right thing, excited. That's what I am. I, I, damn, I've damn been, right. I've been waiting for this episode uh, for the last couple of weeks, and you know, we haven't put anything out. But part of it was the amount of research that we did to like get into and really uh, do Spike right and, and make sure that we got into. Just the incredible body of work that he's put together. I, I can't wait. I'm so excited for this. But with that being said, we are definitely not Spike Lee experts. We don't know every little facet of, of everything about him, but we love his films. We've watched them since we've been growing up, and uh, they're just they're just so fucking good. Yeah, and, and I watched six or seven films getting ready for this episode, and I forgot how amazing it was. Like You forget the nuances I because I'd seen most of the movies that we are going to talk about today you know, back when they came out or, or quite a while ago. But when you really look at him with a critical eye, you start to have a whole new appreciation for the greatness of the filmmaking. You really, I mean, it's mind-blowing. We'll obviously get into all the details in a little bit, but I mean, it's it's just mind-blowing the quality that the guy can continue to churn out decade after decade. And it kind of reminds me of Tarantino, who's like, I'm 10 films and I'm out, and that's it. And it's Spike's an artist that every film that he makes, you can get something out of it. Whether you like it or not, there's going to be something that's going to keep you watching that movie yep. coming back. And all of his movies, and, and we're going to get into a bunch of them, but it, there's something to take away from each of them. But before we get into those, let's... Yeah, let's do some reviews. Uh, I'll go ahead and start because I was able to actually watch some movies since the last time we recorded. So the first one I want to talk about is High Flying Bird. Okay, it was... Uh, Netflix, Steven Soderbergh, it was shot on an iPhone, and I just remember Netflix bombarding me with, you know, tweets and, and you know, previews and everything when I was turning on my uh, Amazon Fire Stick. Hey, Amazon, feel free to sponsor us. Um, <laughs> so I watched it. It's about an hour and a half. Andre Holland and Zazie Beats are great. Andre Holland plays a sports agent uh, who's trying to sort of redefine uh, the... NBA's business model with uh, sort of the control that they have over the players and it gets into the power structure in the NBA and how that collides with race and we'll probably touch on the similarities between this film and He Got Game when we talk about He Got Game in a little bit but I give it an eight and a half out of ten it's always fun to see Soderbergh he's one of those guys who's always trying something new and this is this is Absolutely no different. So check out High Flying Bird on Netflix. Uh, I went to the theater because I'm a rom-com guy. It was uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> Valentine's Day. My beautiful wife Jessica came with me, uh, <laughs> and we really enjoyed Isn't It Romantic? The Rebel Wilson, Adam Devine, Liam Hemsworth, Priyanka Chopra vehicle that is exactly what you want it to be. It's a sweet film. It's fun. Uh, I give it a 6 out of 10. And it's, it's a movie that really kind of takes the piss out of rom-coms and points out sort of the, the hokiness of them. But 
not so far that it looks like it's, you know, looking down on the genre and like it's too good for it. So it's an, another one, hour and a half. It's the exact amount of time you want it to be. Uh, Rebel Wilson is really, really good. She's really funny. And there were some fun performances by Hemsworth and Priyanka Chopra Jonas, I understand. Um, but they were really good, really funny. So I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, Please tell me the credits said Priyanka Chopra Jonas. I liked the movie a lot. I didn't like it enough to watch the credits. So. <laughs> okay, my, all right. Fair enough, fair enough. So, I'll check that out when it comes out on Blu-ray, okay? Um <laughs> And then the last one I got for you is Gotti. Uh, I took a look because we are award season. We got Oscars coming up. If you want our Oscar picks and things like that, uh, we did that on a previous episode. Check that out. But I also looked at the Razzie nominations because I'm always interested in what the shittiest movie of the years are. Uh, the year is. <laughs> and Gotti got quite a few nominations. And so I popped that on and it absolutely deserves every one of those nominations. It should fucking rake at the Razzies. This movie is shit <laughs> top to bottom. Uh, it is exactly what happens when you have a really bad script, and then you couple that with really poor acting and casting, and then you decide to have absolutely no point of view from a director whatsoever. It's just bad everywhere. It it wants to be Goodfellas, and then it said, okay, that's what we're going to do. Take all the good shit out of Goodfellas and keep only the bad. <laughs> like, it's fucking terrible. So it, it was, you know, it's John Travolta, Kelly Preston. It was Travolta's passion project. He's been trying to get it made forever, and it's just awful. I give it a one and a half out of ten. I can't even tell you to go watch it because it's so bad it's good. It's so bad that it's shit, and you shouldn't watch it. So that's what I got. Which so what you've been watching? Well, well, I just want to be clear. So this isn't a from Justin to Kelly situation. Nope, nope. It's it's worse than that. No, it is so much worse than from Justin to Kelly because you can at least enjoy your time with from Justin to Kelly. With wow. with Gotti, yeah, Gotti's just so bad. Uh, well, so I've been watching a couple things. Went to the theater a couple times. Um, also got a Blu-ray of Bad Times at the El Royale, which I give a six point seven out of ten. I wanted to see this one in the theater, but I kind of missed the uh, the window there. Drew Goddard directed it, who also directed Cabin in the Woods, among other things. But Cabin in the Woods, even if you don't like horror films, the movie you have to see. It deconstructs the genre, and it does it perfectly. This movie's not that. This movie has a really good first act, but then it grinds to a fucking halt. Oh. It's shot in a very Tarantino-like style, but it's got this Fincher gloss on it. <laughs> so it's very stylized, and it's very good-looking, but there's no real depth in the film. And there's no real character development that really makes you feel for anybody. And um, I just, I don't know, it, it it didn't grab me. The only thing that kept me watching it was, oh, there's a lot of famous actors in it and it's shot well. Um, you can check it out on fucking Netflix if you want. But I mean, 6.7 out of 10, like I said. The next one I saw, which was on Valentine's, around Valentine's Day, I'd say. Um, unlike you, I didn't see a good film. I saw What Men Want. Don't you be talking, and- <laughs> don't you be talking bad about What Men Want. Oh, okay, yeah. Have you seen it? No, but it can't be that bad. Oh, there's... My yeah, girl's no. in it. My girl's in it. I can't be bad. Look, I will cover Taraji in a second here, but I give that film a two and a half out of ten. It tried to have the heart of what women want, but it tried to accomplish it by just having stereotypical cartoonish characters that were fucking paper thin. And it, it's like, oh, we got to hit this beat, we got to hit that beat. I just really hope there wasn't a script at the time of shooting because if there was, I can only imagine nobody fucking read the thing. And they just said, roll. 
Um, Taraji is the only thing worth seeing in the movie, but even after that, it's still two and a half. I mean, our boy Hardison, Aldous Hodges in the film, he does a fine job, but those are the only two that are like salvageable in this in this I piece still, of shit. I still I mean, want this is a fucking train wreck. <laughs> I still want Aldous Hodge to get a break, man. I think he's really compelling. I think he could be good, but he just hasn't quite hit that one part that shoots him out of the. And the I list. thought it would have been Voodoo Tatum, but it wasn't. You know, he, he didn't he didn't skyrocket to fame with that role. So close. Um, so close. And the last film I saw um, in the theater was Alita Battle Angel, which I give a 7.3 out of 10. It's Robert Rodriguez's style with James Cameron's world building. Those two things combined to form something that's really good with some great action scenes. Does a great job of introducing a complicated world, but not overburdening the viewer with uh, all this minutia and things that you have to come to the movie knowing. I was not familiar with the source material. Um, I had no expectations for this film, but apart from some cheesy dialogue, which you're going to get in a James Cameron script no matter what, and a couple slow scenes here and there, I really enjoyed it. It was just a fun ride, and I really hope they make a sequel because they've totally left it open to one, even with a nice little cameo at the end from a certain A-list actor um, that won't be named here because I don't want to ruin anything in the movie for you. But that's, uh, that's what I saw. So those are some reviews for you guys. Um, Cole, do you think we should get right into talking about Spike? Yeah, I, it's been too long. Let's just, I, I'm so excited. It, let's it really do this. has, so let's do it right now. Pay strict attention to what I say because I choose my words carefully and I never repeat myself. He was a follower who became a leader. You're not an American. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. We out the projects, baby. Where we gonna live at, son? Central Park West somewhere? What you gonna buy your mom, son? How on. A big house. It's the will of the man. It ain't the skill of the man. Don't be afraid of nobody. Take it. Take Go it. strong, baby. Like nobody's better yes. than you. Champagne for my real friends and real pain for my sham friends. I know what I want. My music. Everything else is secondary. Sorry, Gray. You sorry, why? Sorry I called your mother a hog. And you sorry about teasing me about being left back three times, about being on welfare, about me and my brothers having three different fathers. I'll bite already. I said I was sorry. This time, Spike Lee takes a whole new look at growing up in his old neighborhood. Hello. This is Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. Fuck, I'm pumped. Yeah, no, I, I'm almost, I don't think we're good enough to actually handle the material after that. I really, I, we can't do it justice, but I we're going to do our best. So let's talk about Spike. Let's talk about some of this, like, why is he considered a great filmmaker? Why do you like him? What are some of the things that he does, Cole, that just fascinates you? Well, I'll get into that in a second, but what I, what I want to say is he's one of those great filmmakers who, when you ask people what they like about him, you typically don't get the same answer. 
You know, when you want to talk about a James Cameron, it's all oh, the effects in the world and all these things are great. Or a Spielberg, it's, you know, it's it's heartwarming. It's, you know, it's a, it tugs at your emotion. With Spike, he's got film techniques and he's got uh, points of view that make people really think. So the things that I really like, he uses the camera in interesting ways in almost every single film that he has. But he doesn't use it in a wasteful manner. He doesn't seem to do things just to do them. Uh, so you'll typically have a lot of people talking straight to the camera. You'll have a lot of in-your-face, very close-up uh, shots that I really like. And I love his point of view. Uh, I love that he goes into a film with a point of view that makes the audience think, but that people will leave it having completely different experiences. And I, I think that that's just a, a sign of a an auteur, which is not a word I use a ton. But what do you love? Yeah, I... Dude, I mean, I, I echo all of the sentiments that, that you have. I mean, to me, it's it's similar to um, Zemeckis in terms of the character. Like, the camera is a character. And you can kind of follow that. And you're going in and out of these scenes following the camera. The guy can do it all. He's got he's got the dolly shot, which he's famous for. And he has there's the super cuts on YouTube of, of those dolly shots, which everyone should go check out. Because they're just amazing. He's got, he's got the close-ups uh, mastered. He's got so many fundamental pieces of filmmaking that he was not the first person to necessarily do all of them but he takes them and makes them his own and so it all rounds out to this amazing style where you know you're watching a spike lee film and you know you're in for just some great content there it's it's you're not going to be disappointed um his music use i mean we could go on for hours about that but i mean the guy has peppered in classical music like i remember watching he got game and when in the in the opening credits it says uh, you know music by Aaron Copeland, I'm like, holy shit, he's using fucking Aaron Copeland, and it worked perfectly because Basketball is Symphony, and he picks these pieces out and picks these this music out that just all makes it amazing. It is, and I love that you mentioned the credit sequence that he got game because that's another thing that he does really creatively is you'll see in a lot of his films these dynamic opening credit sequences. I think probably the most famous one was Rosie Perez in her very first film she ever did in Do the Right Thing, where she's dancing to fight the power. And it's not a short, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a truncated version. You just literally are watching her dance to this great Public Enemy song. And, you know, 25th Hour has an incredible opening credit sequence. You just have a lot of creativity in areas that I think lesser filmmakers who may still be decent, but maybe not on the echelon of a Spike Lee, take for granted. And they, they will sort of mail those parts of the film in. And he just doesn't do that. He uses every minute that he has the audience's attention to try and say something. And I love that. And the actors that he works with clearly love working with them because they keep working with them. And some of their best performances, if not their best performances, are in his film. So he brings that out. I got to imagine the uh, the life on the set um, for Spike and, and the actors is just such a great collaborative uh, environment where he gets what he wants out of them. But I don't I don't picture him as a demanding, like, do it this way, fucking tyrant kind of thing. I think it's all co- collaborative with him, and he understands, like, I'm going to surround myself with these great people, and I'm going to get this great work out of them. I mean, when Rami won the BAFTA, you can see in the background there when he's about to walk up on stage, Spike was in the in the aisle just fucking dancing and losing it, and Rami went up to him to give him a hug, and Rami worked with him on The Sweet Blood of Jesus, which is a film that nobody fucking saw. Right, and, and, and when you hear him talk about actors— 
you just see that light shine where he loves working in the collaborative process with all of the people that he works with. And uh, he also, if you look at his filmography and you look at the crews, not just the actors he works with, but the crews, he'll use the same DP whenever he can. I think since 2005, he tries to use Matthew Libatique as much as humanly possible. Uh, he started mm-hmm. with She Hate Me, did Inside Man, uh, Chirac, and he's nominated for an Oscar this year for A Star is Born. I mean, that's he's using people who are just have the vision of let's make a piece of art and it's it shows even in his lesser works or works that weren't seen as much it it's not a shortcut on making sure that we get the best possible people to be involved and he doesn't seem to have a problem getting that to happen yeah i just i love the fact that he's so excited for his actors even when they're getting accolades for films that he had nothing to do with yeah i mean that's just a true sign to me of, of an actual artist who is all about the work, and he, he definitely is. I mean, it's just a true sign of an artist who is all about the work, and he's just happy when great art is made. And I, I think his films, every single one of them, qualify as pretty much great art in some aspects. So why don't we start talking about some of his films, Cole? So what were you watching that you really enjoyed? So uh, he has so many movies that Jed and I, unfortunately, have regular jobs, and we can't watch all of them, but we decided to break them up. And I think we were both responsible for about six or seven of these films. And I started at the very beginning because I saw She's Gotta Have It, which is his first feature film. I saw it probably when I was in high school. And it was incredible then. I watched it again. And I got so much more out of it now than I did then just because of life experience. But anyway, She's Gotta Have It came out black and white film except for one very interesting sequence in the middle. But he made it in 12 days on about $100,000. And there were no retakes in this film. So every take that's in this film, you're seeing first shot moving on. And Tracy Camilla John stars as Nola Darling. And she is our main character. And we're just following her, exploring her sexuality through three different partners that she has. And you, while this might not be his best film, and I certainly don't think it is his best film... There's a lot of his signature moves or, or uh, spike-isms that you're going to see in it. One of them is a lot of close-up and direct-to-camera dialogues or monologues. Uh, you see a ton of that camera movement that you were talking about where you know it's kind of flying around the scenes just trying to show you the most interesting aspects of what you're watching. And then you get the real intense visceral visuals, even in black and white, uh, of these characters. And... It's one of those films that people talk about, in my opinion, as being, you know, one of the best first out movies of a modern director. And even though it's not his best, you see all over the place that there's potential for Spike Lee and you just sort of can't wait to see the next thing he's going to do. Um, so I absolutely love She's Gotta Have It. I, I, I think it's on Netflix. Uh, go out there and check it out. It's, it's so good and it's nothing but raw talent. And that's exciting to see. So you're seeing the birth of a of a great director with his first feature there where you're like, oh, this guy's going to he's going to have it one day. Yes. No, absolutely. And, and he actually stars in it, as you'll see him in a lot of his movies. But he stars as Mars Blackman for uh, those of you who haven't seen that. You may remember his Nike commercials with Michael Jordan. Um, and this also got uh, revamped as a, a Netflix series. So I think they're in their second season. They've done like 20 episodes, so check out She's Gotta Have It. I I think it's so worth it, and you can't help but get excited to watch what the next thing's going to be. And for me, the next thing, you know, he does is my favorite Spike Lee film, uh, which is Do the Right Thing. (laughs) Such a good film. (laughs) God damn. His follow-up 
to She's Gotta Have It is so incredibly good. And there's not... It's one of those films with no fat on it, man. Like, there's nothing in it that you would get rid of. Everything serves such an important purpose in that film. I mean, there's such a tenseness as you're watching it. Oh, well, man. And, and you can see the excitement in the filmmaking because he uses every inch of the frame. Do the Right Thing is set on the hottest day of the year in Brooklyn. And it's, it's about this pizza delivery guy and kind of how he's navigating... Uh, not just his job and his child and his girlfriend, but also the race relations and tensions that are within the neighborhood uh, and the different characters that you see. And you'll see a ton of actors who are really famous now. Giancarlo Esposito's in it uh, for Breaking Bad fans. Danny Aiello got an Oscar nomination for it. John Turturro's in it. Um, Spike Lee is the main character. You know, he got nominated that year for for writing. He has been nominated for writing. This is this year for Black Klansman's his first directing nomination, which he got absolutely jobbed for this this particular year. But one of the things I really enjoyed about it is he used the heat of the day to just show this onslaught of oppression in Brooklyn, which just sort of dialed up the tensions between everybody and I thought was incredibly interesting. Um, you do see, again, the carryover from She's Gotta Have It with those in-your-face, loud, claustrophobic uh, scenes, but they're intense. There's humor you know, even though it's a drama and there's some really bad shit that happens, there's some really funny scenes with some really interesting characters. And you, you have, you know, the ending, which, you know, I think we're 30 years on now, so I can spoil it, I guess, a little bit. But, yeah. you know, there, there's a there's a scene at the end where, you know, Radio Rahim dies uh, because of police brutality. And it's heartbreaking. And when you watch it like I did a couple of months ago, it's so relevant still today. And, you know, it's hard to believe that something that Spike Lee really took grief for back then, and he took a lot of grief for in the beginning of his career, he's still getting it today, but particularly in the beginning of his career, I urge you to go to YouTube and watch some of the interviews with, uh, you know, Charlie Rose and others where, you know, it seems like the only question he's getting is why he's always sort of race baiting as they're saying it or always wanting to talk about race and and you, you know <laughs> today i think he can look back and sort of say yeah no shit this is why i mean look, that film is just and all all his films take on social aspects mm -hmm. to with with a completely just basic view of them there's nothing there's no filters that anything is put through this is like this is what we are seeing here we are showing it to you and it's an honest portrayal well and it's not one note that's the great thing yeah. is when we yeah. have a lot of movies today that are trying to take on whether it's race, whether it's misogyny, whether it's sexual harassment, whether it's police brutality or whatever the, the social issue it may be taking on. They're so commonly one note and you just keep hitting it over and over again where Spike is really just cutting this slice out and trying to tell the truthful story of what is going on in front of you and serving up to you like, look, there's a lot of different shit going on. And I'm not going to tell you an answer or how to think, but I'm going to tell you to think. And I, I particularly find it interesting how he thinks about the audience. And, and here's Spike Lee discussing that. I have so much respect for the audience that people come see my films. I don't tell you what to think, you know, you got a brain, and everybody comes to my films, different experiences, so they take from it, you know, what they want. And that's why I like a director who expects his audience to come to the, the theater and use their brain. I love that. I love it, too. It's, it, 
I love thought-provoking films, and I love a director who's willing to maybe take a hit at sometimes at the box office because maybe the film's not going to be for everybody, but for the people that find it and discover it and it connects with, it's going to be so much more than your random action film or sometimes your random comedy. It's uh, It puts it on another level. Well, and, and I think I think that goes to his desire to always paint the picture he wants to paint or tell the story he wants to tell. And if people are going to love it and $100 million worth of people are going to go see it, great. If $2,200 worth of people are going to go see it, that's great. But he's not going to compromise on telling the story he wants to tell just because the audience may or may not get it. And I, you can't ask for more than that out of a director. But... I'm I'm really excited, you know, when you when you sort of go chronologically through his filmography to see this ascent and then, you know, you get to a film like Mo Better Blues where he finally meets his muse, you know. Yeah, he he does. I mean, we've got Denzel and Mo Better Blues and this film I think was very personal for Spike. Obviously coming on the heels of Do the Right Thing, but Spike's father uh, is a jazz musician. And this film is about uh, Denzel Washington plays Bleak Gillum, uh, a jazz musician who just has been doing that since he was a kid, was forced into it by his uh, by his mom. And you can see in the beginning, all he wants to do is go outside and play, but his mom has forced him to do that. He's turned it into a career. It's his passion. It's also made him a very selfish individual. You are getting a glimpse into this uh, this world and this club that, that they play all the time. And he's got his core group of guys. And I always love that Spike, he's big on basketball references in interviews. He tell, talks about how much he loves basketballs. And I think he puts characters in situations that uh, basketball teams kind of go through. And it's very interesting because, you know, Denzel is the leader. He's the captain of this team. But he's got, you know... Um, He's got Wesley Snipes over here who may be better than him potentially or maybe wanting to take up the mantle and take control. And he's got his his other friend who he's known since childhood who's trying to tell him you got to keep this guy in check and, and, and all these balances of things. And I mean, the shots in this movie are great. It's uh, got some early Jungle Fever-like themes. Um, exploration of the black society and the setting of jazz clubs is amazing. I got to shout out to the neon color usage because... Yeah. It's phenomenal in this film. No, that it, film it has really is. beautiful color in it. It's shot so well. And, I mean, his sister's in it and plays a main character and does an excellent job. Um, I, I loved this film, and this film is a very personal, intimate film, and it has social commentary, but it's not social commentary to the extent of Do the Right Thing because it's not going to sacrifice what the story is to make a bigger point it's like this is the message that i have to say and this is what i'm going to say i'm going to tell it through this lens but i'm not going to try to shoehorn in so many other things it's it's really wonderful and one of the things you know you were talking about great shots in this this film and camera angles and things like that and this is the film where spike is credited with inventing that double dolly shot that he's so famous for, which is, um, for those of you who don't know, the double dolly shot is where they put the camera on a dolly track, but they also put the actor on a dolly track, so it looks like he's flo- the, the character's floating through the scene, and you get this layered effect in the film, and there's great supercuts, like Jed mentioned earlier, but also uh, in most of his films, you see this dolly shot used and they came up with it on the spot. Uh, I read an interview where, you know, him and his DP kind of just sort of figured this idea out. And the first time they deployed it was Mo Better Blues. Um, And that's the type of experimentation that you get in a Spike Lee film. It's, it's so well done. The shots in this, in this film and the double dolly shot, as, as you said, are, 
excellent, and he uses them in, in so many films, and it always fits. It doesn't seem like he's shoehorning it in. It always serves an amazing purpose. Yeah, there, there's been, like, one that I see in Crooklyn that sort of like, eh, I don't know if I needed it, but I'm not mad it was there. <laughs> right, <laughs> You right. know? And so, like, in Mo' Better Blues, one of the main themes I just want to sum up is the struggle of what the artist wants versus what the people want. And I really think on the heels of Do the Right Thing, he was most likely getting bombarded with, okay, we want this out of you, we want that out of you. And he's like, but I'm going to make the art that I want and it'll find the people that, that need it. And uh, he stayed true to that his entire career. And uh, we keep reiterating that point, but I think it's very rare that you find that. Well, and I think too that you you see a lot of his films are responses to the previous film that he made. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll you'll notice that that trend throughout. And again, we're not mentioning every single film. Uh, there are films that are in between some of the movies we're talking about. But please hit us up on Twitter. Uh, hit us up on Instagram. Send us an email. Let us know you know the films that you think we should have talked about, or you know what your thoughts are on these. Because we we love to have the the conversation. Because there's so much to love about this filmography. Yeah, and I, the next one I'm going to briefly discuss because. This is one or two podcasts in and of itself, honestly, is is Malcolm X. Got to be one of the most powerful opening scenes I've ever seen. He's got Rodney King video spliced in, a speech, the American flag that burns into an X. It feels reminiscent of the opening of Patton, but just turns it on its fucking, on its uh, face, and it's on its head, rather. And it's just so good. And what I love is that it's not your typical cookie-cutter biopic. This is an honest portrayal based on the data that he has and based on the Alex Haley book about Malcolm X. And Malcolm X is not a perfect individual. I get the feeling watching the film that he's really a follower, but when he finds something to follow, he takes it past whoever he's following. So he has a mentor in the beginning in Spike Lee's character. He takes everything past where that guy is. And then he gets in jail and he takes everything past where his mentor for the Nation of Islam is. And he wants to get to the truth. He wants to take things to the ultimate level, which is the higher power. And it's just such... Everyone... Don't be intimidated by the three hours and 21-minute runtime. It is a film that everyone needs to watch. It is not only a marvel in filmmaking, but it's a marvel in social commentary. And it's just it's such a powerful movie. And I was just a little young when it came out. I wasn't going to go to the theater at you know nine years old to go see this <laughs> thing. But I'm just so happy I, I eventually watched it. And it's just so fucking good. Well, when we were breaking these down, I had seen Malcolm X a couple of times. Uh, didn't see it till high school. And I think I watched it again in college. But... When you had said you hadn't seen it, I think I called you like four or five times saying, hey, have you seen Malcolm X yet? Did you watch it yet? Yeah, Did you watch it? True story. Because I, it's probably my favorite biopic of any that I've seen because it doesn't go with that traditional route and it's not short. They're not trying to tell a life in an hour and 40 minutes. And when you watch Malcolm X, it's hard not to look back on the biopics that you've seen in the last 15 years and go, I mean, they're still okay. They're still good, but... Man, it just feels like so uh, superficial compared to the depths dug into in Malcolm X. And, you know, Malcolm X for Spike is probably his greatest cinematic achievement, not just what ended up on screen, but the stories of how that movie came to be and what he had to do to get it made. Um, he struggled, even though I believe it was Warner was financing it, but they cut they cut the money off on him. And he, had to, he had to go around fundraising to like Oprah. He had, he had that Oprah money. Yeah, he, well, had, he had celebrities giving him money, and it was, oh. 
and, and, and but what I love about it, and there's, I really do encourage everybody go out on YouTube and try to find some of the anything from the mid to early '90s. Uh, Spike Lee interviews, particularly anything about Malcolm X, you can see on his face how drained he was from the experience. Um, it, it was really, it was a two-year project for him. Worked night and day doing it. Um, got got the money cut off. Went to go find more, but it was always to make sure that he told the story he wanted to tell and release the film he wanted to release, no matter what. And once he got it edited to three and a half hours, he said, yep, that's the movie I wanted to, to make. So I'm sorry, it's not going to be two hours. And it is worth every minute of it. It, it is. I just want to, you know, say one thing. I mean, you say it's like your favorite biopic ever, which I understand. It's really up there for me. But I think Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story is, uh, it's just tough because they're neck well, and neck right there. I mean, you know, that's on Mount Olympus. You know, we're not really even talking is. Mount Rushmore at that point. So for those of you who haven't seen Dewey Cox uh, or Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, really check that out and let us know how that compares to other stories like Ray um, <laughs> and Walk the Line. <laughs> and Walk the Line especially. <laughs> oh, I've been halved. <laughs> but uh, the other thing that we would be uh, idiots for not bringing up since we've already talked about the double dolly a lot the greatest example of it is in Malcolm X. And I think that uh, yeah. the critics uh, that you find online will agree with us. Uh, that is the single greatest deployment of the double dolly there at the end with Malcolm uh, kind of just being ushered to what he believes to be uh, a guaranteed assassination. Yep. He, he definitely knew it was coming. Yeah. Not maybe not then, but at some point it was definitely going to happen. Yeah. It, it's, it's so good. And the, the, the powerful nature of not only going through making Malcolm X, but then dealing with, you know, it came out, critics really liked it, but the Oscars ignored it. Denzel got a nomination, but other than that, it gets ignored. And, you know, there's an interview out there with Spike who's talking about like, look, I don't want to get into the Oscars and what they did with it, but like, son of a woman, are you fucking kidding me? Um, <laughs> but he thought it was going to make a hundred million domestic. It, it should have. <laughs> like, there's no reason it shouldn't have. It's so yeah. incredibly good. But he was so drained from that, that his, his, you know, his follow-up to Malcolm X, it, again, going back to the theme of the response to the films that he did prior, was a film that I think is really important to talk about this year, which is Crooklyn. Uh, Crooklyn was written by his siblings, Joie and Sinka Lee. Uh, Spike is credited as a co-writer, but he in turn gives the credit to his siblings for coming up with the entire story. They brought it to him and said, I think, you know, we have something here. But this follow-up to Malcolm X is a drastic change from the size and the scope and frankly the difficulty of making Malcolm X. What this film is, is a slice out of a summer that's autobiographical for Spike Lee and his family. It's about his mom and his dad, played by Delroy Lindo and Alfre Woodard, uh, and a summer in Brooklyn. And it, it is really, really reminiscent. I shouldn't say that. Roma is reminiscent of this. You know, this yeah. is this yeah. is kind of the year of Roma, where it's uh, you know Alfonso Cuarón took a slice out of his life uh, of a particular summer. And there's may not be necessarily an easy plot to discern for all the characters. You're just literally watching a slice of time. And that's what Crooklyn is. Crooklyn is not a, we got to figure out if he's going to get a job at the end of the movie. We got to figure out what's going to happen to Malcolm X. Uh, it's literally watch my family in this summer. And they don't say what year it is, but it's, it's early 70s. And uh, it's just engaging. And it's easily the warmest uh, Spike Lee film that you're going to see. Not because he's otherwise angry or anything like this, but it's 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 shot a little softer. 
Its uh, themes are a little softer. And there's an incredible performance by Zelda Harris, who was eight or nine at the time. She plays Troy, who ends up being the main character. And that's based on Joie Lee, uh, Spike's sister, who grew up in a house of four brothers. And sort of how she's dealing with being eight or nine at that time. And it is just a wonderful sort of family dramedy following this this family. And it, it's incredibly sad. It details the death of Spike's mom, who was a teacher and died of cancer very young. And that happens to Alfred Woodard in the film. And it was actually just voted on by New Yorkers as the winner of their One Film, One New York Award, where they tried to get New Yorkers in all five boroughs to watch the same movie at the same time. And, you know, the voters wanted that movie to be Crooklyn because it really captures the essence of a of a Brooklyn in a Bed-Stuy area that isn't there anymore. And I, I listened to a lot of uh, interviews with Spike Lee kind of prepping for this thing. And one of the things he kept talking to uh, or, or kept saying about setting the time frame of this film was talking about the music. And here's what he had to say about that. Music is always, I've found, to be the easiest thing to get a sense of the time period. Yeah. I mean, you look at what George Lucas did with American graffiti. So there's many different examples of that. And uh, this is a music of uh, that we all love growing up, Motown and all the other stuff. So uh, this film has two CDs. So we just, and back then it didn't cost a lot of money. I mean, now it's going to cost you for James Brown's song, but wasn't that that big cost back then? So we were able to uh, really just put all the songs I loved into uh, into it. And, and I totally agree with him. Uh, it, it is a phenomenal soundtrack. It probably would be too expensive to do <laughs> again <laughs> now, um, but it is a kind of ingenious way to set the time of when a movie is is just by using the music. You know, he kind of yeah. does that in Do the Right Thing. You know, Public Enemy, Fight the Power. Uh, that is a very visceral late 80s uh, song. And so it puts you, you know, yeah, in 89 when that came out, everybody knew it was 89, but 20 years later, you're going to need to know when was it, and it puts you right in that frame of mind. And I got to imagine this film, too, like really speaks to the core group of strong family members he has around him and the core support group, because coming off Malcolm X, as, we, as you alluded to, such a draining endeavor for him that... I don't think you go back and do another heavy after that. I don't think you're able to do that. I mean, he even has said in an interview, it's like, after you finish a film, you just want to like sit in bed for a month and yeah. never, get, never get up. So to have his family support him and come up with an idea of like doing something lighter um, while still very meaningful and still very good, it's just really a testament to he can't do all this alone. And I think he has such a great support group around him. So even though that this was, you know, maybe his warmest or least controversial film or, or however people wanted to put it, he was still out there looking for ways to use the camera and use the lens to tell his story in a unique way. And he probably took his, his largest chance to the point where people thought something was wrong with the film, which was him changing essentially the aspect ratio when Troy goes down to visit her family in the South. And here, here's him talking about that. There is, um, you might call a spoiler alert, but I don't want you going up to the projection booth. When Troy goes down south, we use, we put on anamorphic lenses because I wanted to convey that she's in a different world. Growing up on the streets of Brooklyn, then going down south, grass, trees, insects, she's in a different world. I, I think it's genius. I don't know about you. I do too. It's, it's really effective, and when you watch the movie, you get, you get a sense of it. And it makes you uncomfortable watching it, and it just puts you in Troy's shoes. 
And I can't imagine another filmmaker making that choice. And and I've I've read reviews where people hated it. I've read reviews where people even today say, oh, that was unnecessary or it, it jars you too much that it takes you out of the film. And I disagree with that. Everybody can have their opinion. But that's the type of chance that I expect from a Spike Lee movie. And he doesn't really ever let down. And I, Crooklyn, everybody should see it. It's just a good film. You know, it's not his best. But it's it, for those of you who like Roma... You have to watch Crooklyn, full stop. You know, they talk about directors crossing the line, and you should never do that. I mean, changing the aspect ratio is taking that to a whole other level. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but he, it works, man. <laughs> oh, it is. It's incredible. It, it, you know, he, he does a lot of stuff that I think filmmakers typically say, you can't break the fourth wall, and you can't have a dolly shot every single time, or you can't have these really jarring double cuts that he does a lot more than I think other directors do. But again, he's going to keep your attention however he needs to keep your attention. But I never look at any of these techniques as um, superfluous. I always look at them as every time they happen, they were done for a reason. And if it made me uncomfortable to watch the movie, and Troy is supposed to be who's shepherding me through the movie then it worked 100%. Yeah, I, I I enjoy that film, and it's one of those where I, I need to watch that again because some of the aspects you brought up, you kind of, I missed on the first viewing, but it's uh, there's a lot of depth there. And there's another, again, broken record, brilliant dolly shot where he upped the ante on his double dolly and had Troy floating in air in a dream sequence <laughs> right, as opposed right. to just floating down the street. So... Um, for those of you keeping count at home, that might be the 45th or 46th time we've mentioned the double dolly, but it's that good, okay? It's that good. And, and guess what? Of... It's going to come up again. I'm just saying. <laughs> but speaking of floating in air, I mean, I just that brings us to another film that he made called He Got Game, which really deserves its own podcast, and we'll probably have one soon. But Yeah, I could see us doing a deep dive there because it combines his two loves, basketball it really does. and basketball. Denzel Washington. <laughs> and Denzel Washington, exactly. This film is so good. I remember the first time I saw this this film, I uh, I had rented it because I didn't get out to the theater to see it, and I watched it at night. And uh, this was when uh, I had a basketball hoop in my backyard. I watched the movie, and then I went outside at midnight, and I wanted I just wanted to shoot hoops. Yeah, it's one of those films, basically like the first ten minutes of Space Jam when you get that Michael Jordan montage. This film makes you feel that way throughout the entire movie. You're watching it. You're with Ray Allen, who plays Jesus Suttlesworth, and you just are so engrossed in what's going on and all the different characters and all the different themes that he's discussing. High school basketball, college basketball, recruiting, Rick Fox playing a a college, I hope, senior because he looked like he was 45. Um, just it, the film has has everything in it. It's so well done, and even Ray Allen, who is not a obviously tra- classically trained actor, he's a classically trained basketball player. He manages to to make the film really good. He does a good job. He's exactly what that character needs to be. But like I, I just want to touch on it one more time. I was inspired at midnight to go shoot hoops because this film told me, hey, you can be Jesus Shuttlesworth. Now I know I can't, but this film was so engrossing. Don't cut yourself down like that. <laughs> There's still time, man. There's still time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna grow a foot. You're right. <laughs> That's what's stopping you. Just growing a foot. That's you that's can't all you teach need. height, man. You can't teach height. <laughs> but you no, know, he got game was another one. I think it hit us at the the right time uh, of our lives where you're young. You're I loved basketball at the time, and I it did the same thing for me. I was blown away by it. I did see it in the theater, and it, it was something where you're like, oh shit, I'm gonna go play basketball now. And it's not just a basketball film though, and no. that's that's another 
uh, thing that Spike is never going to give you that one note film. And while it is a basketball film and it's probably going to end up on a bunch of people's top 10 list for sports films, it's again a story about where the intersection of basketball and commerce and race come with the NCAA, which is what I was talking about earlier with High Flying Bird that just deals with the NBA instead of the NCAA. But it's how it's all a business. Um, and a lot of times it's an exploitative business, not just on the young, but on, you know, people of color and, and people who come from really destitute areas and bringing all that in while also having a a dynamically fun character driven sports film. I mean, I feel bad for Jesus Shuttlesworth as that film goes on. And it's, it's rare to feel bad about a character that you know is going to make it and is going to have all his dreams come true because he's the man, he's got game, as the title says. But everyone in his life, down to his father, who is getting out of prison just on a, like a weekend furlough just to try to talk him into going to big state so that the, the governor who went there can basically be the alumni who got Jesus Shuttlesworth, the chosen one, to play there. Everyone in his life, sans his little sister who he's taking care of, want something from him, his uncle, his girlfriend, his coach, everybody. This is a character that is just seen as a tool for everyone around them. And I really believe that that's a lot of what these players who go to these colleges and get recruited, they're seen as tools. They're not actually seen as people. And this film really touches on that and encapsulates it. And I just feel bad for him throughout the entire film. And I just am rooting so hard for him to just make it to not have something bad happen and for just a happy ending for him. And I also feel bad for Ray Allen for how dunked on he gets in every scene he's in with Denzel Washington. Well, yeah, dunked <laughs> on with the with the fucking the bank shots, which I, I, the funny story there too. He was supposed to get uh, beaten like 11 zip um, or whatever the score is they were supposed to play to. And they just started playing and Denzel starts with these fucking bank shots. And that's like real. <laughs> they, they, they just filmed it and they, it worked. It worked in. And I think, when Jesus, you know, when Ray Allen says, all right, no more of that, we'll cut out of that lucky shit now, that's fucking real. That's really Ray Allen being like, all right, bullshit. No, nah, we're, we're going here. I'm going to fucking beat your ass. Well, and, and that's the thing I really enjoy about Denzel because, and it's great casting and Denzel's great in everything he does, but he's supposed to have this intimidating relationship with Ray Allen's character. And I think you could tell in the scenes that they acted in together that Ray Allen, the actor, was intimidated by Denzel, the actor, not just the character being intimidated by the character. And that shone through. And I think that that was, again, really good choice of direction to say, let's not put Ray Allen, who's a Hall of Fame NBA basketball player, in positions where he's going to have to carry a scene with his acting. Let's make his character feel the pressure because I'm putting him in a scene with Denzel Washington. And I think that this is an underrated Denzel performance. I mean, Malcolm X might be his finest performance. Obviously, he won for Training Day. He won for Glory. But his performance in He Got Game is fucking tremendous. It's 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 amazing. I mean, Rosario Dawson is, is great in this film. Everyone, I mean, Bill Nunn as, uh, as the uncle, I, I just everyone plays their part to perfection. All the pieces fit in. And, you know, when I look back on the film, I think the thing that stands out the most is that I was nice to see Travis Best again. Cause I always, seen it's him always good to see <laughs> Travis Best. It's always good to just get a Travis Best check-in just to make exactly. sure everything's okay. It's, uh, it's all good. Um, so uh, we can talk about He Got Game for hours. But another film I really want to touch on, which is one that 
I don't really think, at least I never got the impression from people I've talked to, that a lot of people have seen, but uh, it's called 25th Hour, and it's based on uh, a book by David Benioff, and yeah, that is the co-creator of Game of Thrones, David Benioff. I believe he wrote this uh, this book while he was in uh, college at UC Irvine. Yeah, this was this was actually the prequel to Game of Thrones. <laughs> It's odd prequel, man. That's, but, you know, maybe on some level it could work. That's Left really turn. One. <laughs> um, it's set in a post-9-11 New York, and the impact of 9-11 is still extremely fresh and felt by all around. And what he does so well in this film is you get that that kind of fog, that sense of 9-11 is, is in every scene and in everything that happens, even though the story has is not about that at all. But there's hints and nods to it everywhere and uh it's very well done uh very tasteful it's honestly one of my favorite spike films and it's just great storytelling and the performances by norton hoffman cox pepper dawson paquin they all turn in these amazing performances this film hinges on the club scene and that's where all the characters come together and you see all the character development and their motivations and he uses these long shots and goes from character to character uses the dolly shots has music that is playing by a DJ throughout the entire scene that is basically showing you what the characters are going through as the DJ is playing this mix. And it's it's really a work of art. So even if you don't feel like sitting through the movie, which you should, just watch that one fucking scene. Yeah, I, um, 20, 25th Hour to me is one of those films that wasn't appreciated at the time, I don't think was seen by a lot of people at the time, but has garnered a following in the last 15 years or so that... Uh, I think people look back on it now and consider it maybe one of his better movies. And it is an unbelievable cast. One of my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performances. Anna Paquin's yeah. also. Her, nobody ever talks about her performance in 25th Hour. She's great. She's so great in that film. She's, she's amazing in it. I mean, and the story is kind of like, if you knew your life was going to end the ne- in tomorrow, what would you do tonight? And it's, it explores a lot of those themes. It explores a lot of other things. There's a couple things in the film that didn't work for me, but I mean, they're very minor. And overall, this is, it's a heavy uh, must-watch film. And the director, Spike, has a clear vision, and he has all the tools to achieve that vision. And it, the music is so fucking awesome in it, too. It's just a great film. Well, and I think that while maybe his best-reviewed films are, you know, like Do the Right Thing or Malcolm X, I think that this sort of Crooklyn, he got game, 25th hour, and we're getting ready to talk about Inside Man, I think this is his height of his powers, height of his ability, and not making a lot of missteps, regardless of what the box office tells you or regardless of what awards tell you. These films sort of back-to-back-to-back are really good. And there's, again, we're skipping some, not because they're lesser films, but because, you know, these are the films that really, I think, showcase the type of director he has. You know, we haven't haven't talked about Bamboozled, which uh, was sort of lampooned at the time, and I think with age... Um, that is is probably going to be thought of as better, but has some really controversial visuals in that film. Um, you know things like you know she hate me and and, and all of that. There, there's there's films we haven't talked about. Still check those out. But in this this particular era here, the end of the '90s, beginning of the 2000s. I mean, he was just rocking and rolling with the choices he was making. I think I agree. Hundred. I mean. As you said, height of his powers, the guy has all the tools. He knows how to make what he wants. He knows how to use the actors that he wants. And I mean, the fact that like Edward Norton and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Barry Pepper at the time wanted to work with him, and it just really speaks to Spike and how great he is. And he can find all this talent, and he gets the best performances 
out of them. And Inside Man, I mean, you would not think of Clive Owen as an actor you would find in a Spike Lee film, but goddamn, does it work. And he's so good. Clive Owen is so good in Inside Man. And, you know, with Inside Man, this was Spike's jump from that more independent, smaller fare to really his largest mainstream movie. And to date, it's still his largest box office film. And the reason it is is because it's fucking awesome. It's so fucking good. I mean, and Chewie Tell Edgy 4, I think that was the first time I'd seen him. God damn, is he good in this movie. I mean, him and Denzel together, yep. you can see why Ridley Scott cast him together in American Gangster. Yeah. Because they're so good. It is such a smooth movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's a heist film. There's a lot more to it, as all of these films are. But it's, again, you know, when you showcase the greatness of a director, they can't continue to make the same choices in the same films. And Inside Man was, you know, not necessarily taking a niche director or a, a small director uh, in small films, but he flexed in an area that, you know, I could see where a Bruckheimer produced production of this directed by Michael Bay goes a totally different fucking way. Oh, God. Explosions up the ass. And Spike has a lot of those same... There's explosions in this movie. There's violence in this movie. There's sleek, sort of uh, quick filmmaking. But he does it his way, and it is so incredibly good. I challenge anyone to watch Inside Man and not want to watch it again immediately after. It, it's that fucking good, it and it's it's that great of a story. It's, oh... So good. Yeah, it's and a lot of the things that we're talking about, you know, like I said earlier, maybe a little bit of a broken record, but we're starting to get to the point where we're talking 15, 16, 17 years into his run Mm -hmm. and you're just getting remarkable film after remarkable film that are all giving you a slightly different look at things and you're seeing the maturation of a filmmaker that is deciding I'm going to take chance after chance after chance. And I really think after Inside Man is where he really starts to go off book more. Well, yeah, he's to me, he's very much like uh, Terry Gillum, where they're cut from the same cloth, where they don't really care what the budget is. If they're going to make a movie, they're going to make the fucking movie. And I've, I've heard Spike even talk about um, that he tells his students, do not make a movie that you're not going to get the, the budget for. So do not write in the script that you're going to, have all these big explosions or these huge set pieces if you're not going to get that money. He's like, you have to be, this is a budget kind of game, and you have to be cognizant of we're going to be able to do this, we're going to be able to do that. Because if you just want to write everything and do this huge world building and all this kind of stuff, but you're not going to get the financing for it, your film is going to suffer. So you have to know what film you're making up front, and he's great about that. Leads me into Red Hook Summer, which was a small film that he made, um, very independent looking. It, it has just obviously the Spike signature all over it, um, and it deals with some really heavy subject matter. Doesn't kind of feel that way. It almost feels Crooklyn-esque in the sense that it's a it's a boy having his summer in New York with his grandfather, so it takes a slice of life, but it really turns it on its head in the last in the last act and. Um, Honestly, a lot of the movie didn't work for me because he used these child actors that even the greatness of Spike cannot overcome people who don't know how to deliver lines. Right, and, and you know, casting child actors is hard for everybody, and I listened uh, to a Spike interview where he was talking about Crooklyn, and one of the great things about Crooklyn was Zelda Harris, who was eight or nine at the time that they made that film, was so great. I mean, she's uh, great for an actor, period. Not an actor of youth, but just an actor, and the kids in that film are so good that it doesn't take away from how good the movie could have been. And I think that's why Crooklyn reached such a full potential where Red Hook Summer, um, it's, I haven't seen it, but it sounds like to you it really sort of soured what could have been a better film. Yeah, but the thing is, it's still worth watching. I'm not mad that I saw it. It, it still has a message. It still expresses that message and conveys it in such a 
such a difficult to watch way but necessary that's the thing there's no shock value in spike lee films where it's I'm doing this just for the sake of shocking you. No, everything serves a purpose and there's depth to everything. And that's very rare to find in in films. Yeah, it, you've never seen a Spike Lee film where it's been mailed in. There's not been a paycheck film that I've found yet. Um, there may be people that disagree with me. Let me know, but I, I just don't think it's there. Some people may think it's one of the other ones, Old Boy, which was a remake of a Korean neo-noir film. I think that was just Spike saying, hey, I liked this original movie. Let me see if I can remake this fucking thing. And so he didn't control the source material until in terms of what it was based on. But Josh Brolin was in this movie. This movie got shit on by a lot of people because they love the original. And I admit the original is, is probably a superior film. But this is not a bad movie. I enjoy this film. I, I've watched it several times. It's well done. And it was made on, I believe, a pretty small, fairly small budget on a very tight timeline. Josh Brolin has talked about how he had to lose like... 30 pounds in like three days some insane thing and almost got sick and all this stuff happened but i mean even that even a movie like that spike's giving it his all and he's putting his own his own spin on it and uh, it's just the fact that he's willing to branch out and do all those things is just a testament to the artist yeah it's him just saying i'm gonna take this chance this is what i want to make and i'm gonna do it and you know another very well thought of example of that is chirac uh, personally, I think it's a bit of a mess. I It's my least favorite on the list that we've talked about. It's a take on Aristophanes' Lisa Strata, so a very familiar story to everyone listening to this podcast, including myself. The thing, it, it's his take on the gun violence and gang violence that's going on in Chicago, and it's, it's a quasi-musical, all written in verse, but I can tell you right now, Tiona Paris, who plays Lisa Strata in it, is a fucking star and i cannot wait to see what she does the rest of her career because uh, i think right now she's been on empire she's in dear white people she's gonna have a hell of a career because she's too good not to she's one of those performers who's too good not to it also starred nick cannon had samuel jackson does nick cannon play the drums (laughs) nick cannon does not play the drums somebody does try to shoot nick cannon in the first scene but uh, oh, that's yeah. Good. He actually well, you got me. I'm, I, you had me and Nick Cannon getting attemptedly shot. <laughs> he actually plays Chirac, <laughs> but uh, there's so many great people in it. John Cusack's in it. Angela Bassett's in it. Jennifer Hudson's in it. Dave Chappelle's in it. Uh, Wesley Snipes teams up with Spike again. Uh, it's just, I mean, critics absolutely loved it. So I'm definitely in the minority. I just thought it, I thought it was a little too all over the place. But again, what I love about Spike is he's taking a swing every time. And when you take a swing every time, you might not always hit, but at least you go down swinging. And for me, Chirac didn't quite hit the mark, but I mean, I absolutely loved the audacity of that swing because that is a gigantic undertaking to set that story where he did. And I I appreciate the passion with which he executed it. He took a Reggie Jackson-like cut at the ball. Yeah, where that knee goes down to the ground and he almost falls over. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that kind of brings us to, I mean, finally Spike gets a Best Director nomination for Black Klansman. Long fucking overdue. Yeah, and I mean, Black Klansman, in my opinion, is an extremely good film. Uh, Jed and I actually haven't talked a ton about this. I I don't know. I saw it first, I think. Did I see it before you did? Yeah, you did. So I, Jess and I went to go see that, and I think we saw it opening weekend, or at least opening weekend when it came around the house. And we were, I don't know, two of six people that were in the theater 
and <laughs> I, I really, really liked it. There, there are some aspects of the film that I, I can't really discern whether I have a problem with the source material or the actual story or how the whole thing went down or if it's a filmmaking issue. But he, again, does some really interesting things. Um, before we get into kind of our critique of the movie thematically, I do want to talk about some of the filmmaking techniques. You know, the faces in the crowd scene where Kwame Ture is talking about black beauty. And, yeah. uh, I mean, it's just stunning, that visual. Uh, I, I absolutely loved it. And, again, it's bringing the subjects of the film close in, into your face, which makes everything so personal that we've, you know, he's been doing since he started making films. I absolutely loved it. Um, the casting again was very good. You know, you got John David Washington, who is absolutely not his father, um, and he was perfect. He, <laughs> no, he's he not. was perfectly fine in the film. Adam Driver was very good. Topher Grace was very good. Uh, from an acting standpoint, I thought everybody was fine in the film. But I, again, thought that the storytelling is the standout. I would not put this on a list of the top three Spike films I've ever seen, though. Um, I don't think it's that. I don't think it even makes my top fucking six or seven, honestly. Like, I enjoyed the film a lot. I thought it was very well made and very well done. The faces thing that you uh, that you talked about was very impactful, but then it lost its impact because I thought it went on way too long and was kind of uh, just meandering, um, I guess you would say. But... Uh, John David Washington, I don't think can carry a film yet. He did his best and Spike supported him as much as he could. I just, he's, he's, as you said, he's not his father. And and I think he struggled at times. Um, even though I, I mean, I think he did the best he could, uh, with what, with what he has, the tools he has as of now. Um, I struggled with the film in terms of, I think of it as two pieces. You have the film and then you have the last five minutes or so where you get that gut punch and you're left, you leave the theater with that feeling, and you're, which is an insanely important feeling that everyone needs to have and needs to recognize what's going on. But I separate that from the actual film because the film itself is is good. It's good. It's not it's not amazing. I don't think he was the best director this year. I'm very happy he got nominated, and it's long, long overdue. But the film struggles with some things, and it could be the actual story that it's based on, where I. I didn't know what they were trying to accomplish and it never really became clear to me as I was watching it. And that's what I struggled with the entire time of like, obviously I know who I'm rooting for and what character I'm getting behind, but I just was like, what do you guys hope to do with this? Right. And I don't think that was really answered well. In my there opinion. were a few scenes that I thought were superfluous, which isn't something I say a lot when I'm watching a Spike Lee film, but uh, you know, like the scene at the end where they set up the dirty cop, like none of that needed to be there. I thought that that was completely unnecessary. And there's also been a ton of discussion about exactly what you're talking about, which is the scenes from the actual footage from Charlottesville that kind of juices the movie a little bit at the end, which I wonder if what he had done with Black Klansman, what he did with Malcolm X, where he put that actual mm -hmm. footage at the top of the film and then presented you with uh, the story. I don't know if I would have felt the same about it. Because I, I agreed with you where it, it, there's sort of the film ends and then you get this actual footage, which is just horrifying and awful and everyone should see it and it's terrible. But because the movie had sort of false ended a couple times before that, yeah. there was a bit of a, you know, Lord of the Rings 3 issue. Fucking Return of the King yeah, kind of shit. Yeah. Where you get, uh, you can tell how much of a Lord of the Rings fan I am. I couldn't remember what the third one was called because 
that's just not my that's that's not my dime, folks. Um, but it had tried to end a couple of times before you got to that point. So it was sort of like, okay, is it like, where do I end? Where do I end? And then did this try to just sort of juice the end of the film so everyone walks out going, how powerful, how powerful? I actually think it may have been more useful and just as powerful on top of it before we got into the actual film. I agree with you. I think it would have snapped everyone to attention right away. And I think... I think the film would have been better for it, honestly. But that being said, I, I still very much enjoy it. I think it was a story worth telling. I, I think it's an interesting tale. Um, and I think that it struggles a little bit. Um, and we talked about this with Green Book, where, you know, maybe that was the story. I don't know. Maybe that is exactly what happened, you know. Yeah. But the story as told that way, I think, leaves a few more questions than, than what it answers. But... I'm glad he got the the nomination. Honestly, in the field of nominees, he's not the one I would take out and put in like a Bradley Cooper who didn't, you know, is is kind of considered the snub this year. Yeah, I you know, I agree. Pavel Pavlovsky for Cold War is probably the one you drop out of there and put in uh, Bradley <laughs> Cooper. But one of the problems that Spike suffers from, I think, when with criticism with some of these films is because you've been so great, you know, all of a sudden your margin of error is so thin. So had somebody else directed this, we might be saying, "Oh my god." What a great job yeah. directing it. But because it's Spike and because he's been so great and, and really he's he's kind of split the atom a bunch of times doing something incredibly difficult and pulling it off so well that I think there were a couple of chances that he took in this film that maybe just didn't quite land um, as much as others. But I still I still very much enjoyed the film and would tell everybody, you know, check it out. It's You're not going to be mad you watched it. There's, there's again, that combination of humor and... Uh, social, not just satire, but commentary. Um, there's there's drama, there's tragedy, but it all still felt real to me. Like it all felt real, which at the end of the day is especially Topher Grace. Topher Grace felt so real. <laughs> Fucking Eric, I just... Eric Foreman. As much as we want to make fun of it, came through with a uh, a good performance. Uh, it really he did. He really did come through with a good, and uh, and Adam Driver did as well. The performances, as you as you said, I agree with you. They, they were fine. I think Spike is one of the few directors that could have taken this story and made as good of a film as he did. Um, and he even talked about on Malcolm X, um, it had to be a black director for that one, and I think it had to be a black director for this film. And he he did an amazing job with it. It's just on the whole, as a film, you got to kind of judge it from a critical standpoint. It's good. Just not not the best thing I've ever seen from right. it. Right. No, I, I would agree with that. I would agree. So, I mean, that kind of wraps up our chronology hike through Spike Lee's uh, filmography. Yeah, just real quick, though, I do want to give a shout out. Um, Spike has worked with so many good actors uh, over the years, but Bill Nunn um, stands out to me in, in every Spike Lee film that he's in. And honestly, every film he's in, you know, back to regarding Henry, he played Radio Raheem. He was in School Days. He was in Mo Better Blues. He was the uncle and he got game. Spike finds these, I mean, Spike's known him since college. I believe they were, they went to college together and he gets these actors who I think he makes them better actors for the other films that they make too, the the tools that he gives them. And I just wanted to give, because Bill Nunn, I don't think gets a lot of respect. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but he's just a fine actor. So uh, if you ever want to see some good, some good movies, watch some Bill Nunn films and you'll get a great performance. He, he was, I was, I was a Bill Nunn fan forever and his portrayal of Radio Rahim is stunning. Um, and he mm-hmm. was one of the people not that i mean i was six years old when that came out so you know i had no opportunity or desire to see do the right thing when i was six 
But had I been old enough to kind of understand what was going on, I would probably be surprised that Bill Nunn didn't have a bigger career. I mean, that guy was so good and such a force. And for those of you who haven't seen any Spike Lee movies, if you have seen Sister Act, he's sort of the love interest cop (laughs) in Sister Act, which was the first time, that was the first time I saw Bill Nunn. And then when I started watching Spike Lee movies, I kept going, oh my God, it's the dude from Sister Act. (laughs) <laughs> which says a lot about, you know, kind of the order in which I watched movies. Chi McBride might have uh, taken some roles from him. And yeah. I love Chi McBride. Oh, yeah. I got nothing against him. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I think, what do you think, Cole? I don't think we should have the last word on this one. I think Spike should have the last word, right? Totally agreed. Before we uh, before we let you off with Spike, we want you to know that uh, you can hit us up on Twitter, at SigBurnsPod. And Instagram as well, at SigBurnsPod. You can email us at CigaretteBurnsPodcast at Yahoo.com. And why don't you listen to Spike, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for being with us, guys. Later. This honorary Oscar is being given to me for my body of work, not a specific film. It's something I've always wanted to do. I decided when I became a filmmaker, I wanted to, to build a body of work. So I'm grateful for that. Like a parent, proud of them all not take any back. Whatever the hardships that one has to go through in making a film and being in this industry, I still feel I'm very blessed because I'm doing what I love. And that's making films. Mm-hmm.